Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 28 and we're dealing with events in early 1978, mainly Operation Reindeer and the attack on Kasinga. As with Savannah, I'm going to spend some time and a few episodes drilling down into Ops Reindeer because it has left a legacy of recrimination and bitterness, particularly between SWAPO and former South African Defence Force commanders. While most combatants now have allowed bygones to be bygones, the attack on Kasinga forms one of the cornerstones of SWAPO's propaganda of this war, while Angolan forces are more forgiving. As you'll hear the details, I think you'll understand why. In the wake of Operation Savannah, border incursions and unrest escalated in northern Avambaland. SWAPO was now crossing into northern Southwest Africa in small, lightly armed sections or groups. Every now and again, a larger group would cross, as we heard last episode, where more than 80 insurgents fought running battles with SAD platoons to and fro across the cut line. South African political leadership believed the increased activity in early 1978 was directly linked to the effort by the Big Five Western countries, the US, UK, France, West Germany and Canada, to negotiate a settlement regarding Southwest Africa. While the negotiations stalled over two main issues, the timing of the SADF troop withdrawal and ownership of Southwest Africa's main port, Balfour's Bay, there was still some hope. Swapo and South Africa could not agree on the troop timetable, while Balfour's Bay was completely off the table as far as Pretoria was concerned. By February 1978, Swapo's publicity secretary, Mohanedi Tlabanelo, was in Wintook, having phoned back from New York-based negotiations. Swapo was completely against the idea that the SADF would be allowed to station 1,500 troops inside Southwest Africa during the election process, and that was in Grootfontein and Oshivelo. They wanted the SADF to be moved far to the south, or preferably right out of the country. When it became clear in March that there would be no immediate settlement, insurgent activity died down a bit, with the infiltration rate dropping drastically. However, two civilians were murdered, both were Vambo headmen. Then, on the 25th of April, South Africa formally accepted the Western proposals for a Namibian settlement, which Swapo then rejected. While the diplomatic tide came and went, the South Africans were actually well on their way to planning a massive invasion of southern Angola once more. But first, the quiet of the past month would be broken. By March 27th, the Swapo team assassinated high-ranking administrator Clemens Kapoor, who was chief of the Herero tribe. Because he was regarded as a foe of the South African government and the Democratic Turnhalo Alliance, the DTA, it was suggested first that Pretoria had had him bumped off. That, of course, was confused logic. As 3-2 Battalion's Colonel Jan Breitenbach wrote later, Chief Clemens Kapoor was almost universally considered to be the most popular candidate for Prime Minister or President by the majority of Southwesterners. But Kapoor also happened to be Swapo President Sam Nyoma's biggest political threat, and so the Herrera leader had to be terminated. Later, Swapo admitted to killing him, claiming he was a sellout. Then, in April 1978, insurgencies and contacts rose once more. Swapo lost seven soldiers in a skirmish with 3-2 Battalion. A few days later, a security force patrol ambushed a Swapo section and killed five. But the last week of April saw another escalation, with Ovambo's Minister of Justice Tara Mbili narrowly escaping death when an insurgent blew himself up planting a mine just outside the minister's house. It's what security forces call an own goal. On April 28th, a large group of Swapo guerrillas numbering around 100 attacked an SADF patrol in western Avambo. Two Swapo soldiers died, and the fact that such a large section of Swapo was involved worried Pretoria. Then the legislative building at Ongwadiva was booby-trapped on April 29th, and a day later a bus with at least 73 passengers on board was hijacked between Oshakati and Rokana and then driven across the border into Angola. Things were unstable back home in South Africa. 
The far right was nipping at the National Party heels, calling them weak and demanding concerted action, while the ruling party was extremely concerned by the perception of the international community. While the MP was trying hard to be the party of reason, they were about to launch another cross-border incursion into Angola, which would lead to a stupendous outcry. This they knew. Thus, Pretoria began to build a narrative that Swapo would bring this invasion on itself by its killing of civilians, but the nationalists also knew they'd face a more stringent arms boycott should Operation Reindeer go ahead. They were caught between a rock and a hard place. One of the more informative books about this time is Jan Breitenbach's Eagle Strike. He was officer commanding 3-2 Battalion, and his book published for the first time in 2008 is chock-a-block full of detail about Operation Reindeer from the inside. As we cover this operation, I'm going to turn to his first-person account quite regularly. The colonel is still alive, but I'm told he is in no mood to chit-chat about the past, so my attempts at reaching him have not been successful so far. Another excellent source was ANC military veteran and Exum Kontubasizwe soldier Joseph Corbo. He was a logistics officer in Kasinga at the time of the operation and just missed the battle after he'd headed off to pick up supplies two days before the attack in May 1978. Corbo was late getting back, and that probably saved his life as the SADF launched their airborne invasion. Unfortunately, Corbo passed away of natural causes in 2019, so I cannot interview him regarding his time at Kasinga, but his book Waiting in the Wing has helped fill gaps, particularly about what Swapo was up to at Kasinga. Because of the disinformation and propaganda around the attack, Corbo and Breitenbach are actually crucial to the story. They fought on opposite sides, but they have a similar take on what happened at the town in May 1978. But first, the story about how the South Africans came to target the town in the first place. Chris Tyrion was the director of the Southern African Desk at Military Intelligence in 1978. The region was broken into the Western or Angolan Desk, the Central Desk, which included Zambia, Botswana and Zimbabwe, and the Eastern Desk, mostly Mozambique. It became apparent to Tyrion and Commandant Bisk Biskov, who headed up the Angolan branch, that Swapo was increasing its presence in the Kuneni province. But where was their main base? On the 27th of October 1977, the Rekis and 3-2 Battalion had struck at Eheke, which was Swapo's eastern front headquarters, around 30 kilometers north of the cutline. By now, the South Africans had instituted a number of beacons along that cutline running mainly east to west. These were spaced 10 kilometers apart, so that Beacon 35 meant it was 350 kilometers west of Rukana. The Beacons 22 to 35 were of particular interest to the SADF and managed to wrest control of this region between these two by forcing Swapo to evacuate Eheke. And yet, captured Swapo guerrillas kept telling the South Africans about a place they called The Farm, which was far to the north of the cutline and crucial in Swapo planning. The Rekis had spent months searching for this place, but to no avail. The SADF knew that the farm was the forward technical command headquarters where plans chief of staff Dimo Amambo deployed his HQ. Every Swapo guerrilla had to pass through this base on their way to the operational area of Avambaland. It was where these fighters drew weapons and kit, received advanced training, and returned for a bit of R&R between deployment inside Southwest Africa. The farm was also known to contain quite a number of women and children. They were relatives of Swapo and planned fighters, and part of the camp included an area supposedly containing prostitutes. The SA Air Force was also searching for this base, and for months they found nothing. It got so bad 
that Colonel Blackie de Swat, who was part of Ops Staff at Air Force, and Military Intelligence Chris Tyrion, who we have just heard about, wagered a bottle of whiskey that either Tyrion's Reckies or de Swat's Canberra's would find the farm. One day, a Canberra returned with the usual film strips of the Southern Angolan Front, and finally, the SADF had its lead. The Canberra had photographed a town called Kasinga from 20,000 feet and found what appeared to be a whitewashed outline of the map of Southwest Africa arranged on an open space. When the intelligence boffins peered more closely at the photographs, they realized that the open space was a parade ground filled with hundreds of Swapo troops. The map of Southwest Africa was the outline of the parade ground. Someone had made a big mistake by painting this map, which showed up clearly against the earthy colors of Angola. Tyrion and the Rekis had been looking in the wrong place, in the bush near waterholes, chanas near rocky outcrops, not thinking for a moment that Swapo would locate the farm inside a well-established town. The photo interpreters at Joint Air Reconnaissance Interpretation Center, or JARIC, flipped through a few more rolls and were now convinced this was indeed Swapo's main base. They'd found the farm. Tyrion lost his bet and duly presented Blackie de Swart with a bottle of whiskey neatly packed in a wooden box. Unfortunately, when de Swart opened the box, he found a miniature bottle of whiskey packed in straw. No one had said anything about the size of the bottle. Army intelligence doesn't always cover itself in glory. As soldiers, and having met some of these, let's say, less informed men of the section, we would joke about military intelligence being a contradiction in terms. They appear to be political deployees at times, and they often were not the sharpest tools in the army shed, despite their arrogance and self-important swaggering. But by the late 1970s, the entire intelligence setup around Task Force 101, or Southwest Africa, had been rejigged. Their HQ was in Grootfontein Air Base, south of the Red Line, but centrally located and within easy reach of Oshakati. That's the HQ of Sector 1-0. This team began to cross-reference points on the ground to the farm. Commandant Johann Simon had reorganized intelligence, which was now staffed with far more effective officers than in the previous two decades. The Commandant's team prepared overlays reflecting a list of contacts and sightings of planned insurgents. They mapped infiltration routes, waterholes, fences and telephone wires, which were used for navigation purposes by infiltrating Swapo sections. Water was the most important element for Swapo as they walked the southwest African bush, and here Jarek and other intel staff outdid themselves. The waterholes, and what were known as chanas, were vital. A chana is a wonder of surface geology. Because of the thick bush-covered Kalahari sand, water was only found at these waterholes and chanas, and chanas were low grass-covered turf-bottom depressions where the local kraals concentrated in close proximity. These chanas could provide water during the dry months. The water table, you see, is quite close to the surface, and water could easily be tapped by digging a shallow well using a small spade, and in some cases you can actually use your hand to dig and you'll reach water in a minute. The population living around these chanas and waterholes were largely Swapo supporters. They were Kwanyamas, and as they told interrogators and quoted by Jan Breitenbach, they were flesh of their flesh and blood of their blood. While this seems like a wonderful opportunity for Swapo and Plan, it was a weakness. The South Africans mapped these villages, waterholes and chanas, and now had an excellent list of routes to be used. Remember, this part of Angola is as flat as a tabletop, and in those days, as I've said, there was no GPS. Swapo insurgents used the wires and waterholes, the chanas and dodgy kraals and villages, as well as cooker shops to navigate into and out of Vumbaland.
The SADF now had a distribution system for sharing intelligence between various agencies, and this led to the Joint Intelligence Centers springing up. Dates of infiltrations became more reliable, along with routes, strength of swapper sections, operational bases, and sometimes even swapper and plan targets. Using these methods, the SADF pinpointed a place called Chetequera, 30 kilometers north of Beacon 9, as an important center for swapper. This was given the nickname Vietnam. There were a number of satellite bases south of Chetequera, alias Vietnam, towards the cutline itself. By March 1978, the South Africans had a pretty complete picture of the enemy's actions and training centers. What they saw alarmed them. Chetequera was manned by up to 300 Swapo fighters, with a few hundred more arraigned along the satellite bases. They were well dug in with extensive trench and bunker systems, defended by mortars, heavy machine guns and B-10 anti-tank weapons. But Swapo had made one critical mistake. They ran these bases in a line north to south. There was not much attempt made at securing their flanks. The northeast, in particular, had no defense networks, and it was clear that Chetequera could be attacked by an SADF mechanized approach, hooking into Swapo's open flank, as Jan Breitenbach puts it. The main target, however, remained Kasinga, and this was codenamed Moscow. It was 250 kilometers inside Angola, and there were significant swathes of bush and miombo forest between it and the cutline. There was also a sprawling base, large by the standards of Angola, and protected by an intricate trench and bunker system. There were heavy machine gun positions along with 82mm mortars, B-10s, and possibly, said Intel, anti-aircraft guns. But it had gaps, particularly on the western side. As we'll hear in upcoming podcasts, it was the anti-aircraft guns that were going to pose a major threat during the airborne assault of Kasinga. The Intel folks weren't sure about the anti-aircraft guns, but the Parabats were going to find out for sure. The other challenge was 20 kilometers south of Kasinga at a small town called Techamuteti. That's where a mixed Cuban and Fapla battle group was based, along with a squadron of T-34 tanks and motorized infantry carried in Russian BTRs. The infantry also had a few soft-bodied trucks which were used to carry troops and tow anti-aircraft guns that could be swiveled to fire horizontally. It was this battalion that was going to cause the SADF a lot of trouble in the upcoming attack on Kasinga. Intelligence suggested the Swapo's strength at Kasinga was up to 3,000 troops depending on their movement into and out of Avambaland. A strong contingent of veteran fighters were housed in a tented camp a few hundred meters out of Kasinga to the northwest. It was during these intelligence-gathering weeks that the SADF picked up another piece of interesting information. Apparently, the South African sapper van der Mesh, who had been abducted at a water point in Avambaland in February 1978, was incarcerated in Kasinga's small jail. Because of this, the SAA force promised they'd avoid bombing the little building. It was true, Van der Mesh had been jailed there, but he had already been moved by the time of Operation Reindeer. Luckily, it would appear, because one of the buccaneers dropped its 1,000-pound bomb onto the structure during the attack, flattening it by mistake. A strong Cuban training and advisor team was also in Kasinga mentoring Swapo and planned troops. So, Kasinga was an enticing target all around, and quite obviously, from a military standpoint, it was strategic. Earlier, an East German signaling unit had been sent to Kasinga to help Swapo deploy a sophisticated radio communication network, but this turned into an excellent source of information for the SADF. Their electronic warfare teams based at Rundu and Katimamulilu began intercepting the East German messages. 
The SADF had hired Spanish-speaking Chileans as well as Portuguese-speaking staff and began picking up the radio traffic between Cuban combat units, pilots, air traffic control and advisor teams. Immediately, it became apparent that MiG-19s and 21s were based at Bia, Luena and, and other areas in the west of Angola and could be rapidly redeployed south through Lubangu and Menong. That was a major threat as it was only a short hop from there to Kasinga. Beside Kasinga and Chetequera, the planners back in Southwest Africa were very interested in a string of smaller bases to the east. Most lay between beacons 25 and 31, and most were quite shallow, only a few kilometers from the border. The deepest was Omapapa, around 30 kilometers inside Angola. Until 3-2 Battalion destroyed the Swapa base in the east at Eheke, the insurgents would develop well-defended static bases. Now they had learned to be more mobile in the south of Angola, preferring to shift their locales as regularly as possible. But SWAPO commanders based further west, towards the Atlantic Ocean, had not learned their lesson. They persisted in establishing permanent, easily identifiable camps around Chetequera, which was going to make things a little easier for the South Africans in the coming battles. So by now, there were around 5,000 SWAPO guerrillas deployed from Kasinga southwards, with a few more thousand training at Kasinga and further north. Opposing them were 5,000 South African troops stretched along the 1,000-kilometer border from Kaukafeld to the eastern Caprivi. Task Force 101 was commanded by Major General Ian Gleeson, who was in charge of all territory north of the Red Line up to the frontline country borders, Angola, Zambia and Botswana. 101 units were also permitted to cross the border in hot pursuit operations, but only to a depth of 50 kilometers. It was a tangled web of protocols. These limits were formalized in later years, as you'll hear, where commanders could cross into Angola without waiting for permission from Army HQ, but were strictly told to attack Swapo and not Fapla or the Cubans. Later, they were granted permission to travel 100 kilometers into Angola, but any operations deeper had then to be authorized by Army HQ. While this was going on, 3-2 Battalion were permitted as far as they could walk into Angola with all their kit on their back, provided they didn't call backup from south of the cut line. This meant the battalion was deploying its own guerrilla platoons on a permanent basis inside Angola, pestering Swapo and Fapla. Intel also began to circulate that Swapo's forward operational bases were filling up fast and it was time for the South Africans to begin a very special training cycle, preparing the parachute battalions and mechanized units for the upcoming Operation Reindeer. We'll hear about that next episode. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. Email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.